Do you ever wonder, <clears throat> why is it that God wants us to pray? What's the point and the purpose? Uh, sometimes we think, well, our prayers can turn the, the hand of God. Maybe, maybe in some ways they do, I don't know. Prayer changes now, us, not God. And the other side... On the other side, we see that, you know what, when we, when we pray, God does a, a work in our heart. And so Jesus told a story. I always like to go back to Him to try to set up how we're going to view things. This is what Jesus said. He told a, peril, a parable saying that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Amen. And then He said, there was a, a woman whose son had gone to to court was in was uh, had charges against him and so she went to the judge's house and she beat on his door seeking justice for her son and she wouldn't stop she kept beating on her door the lord said this wicked and unrighteous judge she finally wore him down to the point where the the wicked and unrighteous judge told the guys that were keeping his house, give that woman whatever she wants. And then God said this, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, when we look at that parable, we, we struggle a lot because we want to try to think that God's making a comparison between himself and a wicked and unrighteous man. But that's not what God's doing. He's saying, if a wicked and unrighteous man who is sought, the answer sought by this, this woman for her children will respond. How much more a God who is righteous and good and who loves you? But the key that Jesus lays out for us in that story is persistence. That's why he said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? On the earth. Jesus said that the essence of seeing faith in his people would be their willingness to continue in prayer despite maybe not having seen the hand of God move while you were praying. When he comes, will he find faith? Will he find men and women? Continuing in prayer, seeking the Lord and His direction, no matter what. So as we look tonight, as we take a look at Psalm 28, and we, we take a look at the final of a trilogy of Psalms dealing with David's love for the sanctuary, um, it begins with David's cry for unanswered prayer. Well, it's what we call unanswered prayer. It's, it's prayer that we pray and then we wonder why we're met by silence from heaven. Why the heavens didn't move and things didn't change immediately as a result of our prayers. And I guess what, what, I, what I want you to consider as we take a look at that and, and still kind of mull over in our minds prayer and the purpose of prayer and what prayer accomplishes in the life of a believer. Don't forget the lesson of the book of Judges. You guys remember the book of Judges? The book of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
And if you spend much time in the book of Judges, you see the children of Israel finding themselves in a place of hardship, hard life. Things get so hard, they call out on God. God sends a judge. A judge delivers the people. Brings them into a time of plenty, where things are good. Where life is is all working out. Which leads the children of Israel into a place of complacency. Where they stop calling on the name of the Lord. And in that place of complacency, they stop calling on the name of the Lord. Things start going south again. Pretty soon things are rocky and crazy and the children of Israel begin to call on the Lord. The Lord hears their cry and sends a deliverer, a judge, who brings them out of their bondage. And as he brings them out of their bondage, they enter into a time of plenty. The time of plenty leads them into complacency. You guys get the point? So, over and over and over again, for roughly 400 years... The same lessons repeated. And the reason that's given to us is that we can begin to realize our own truth. We struggle with this concept. We are never closer to God than we, when we are in the furnace of affliction. When things are hard. When we got to pray. When we got to call on God. When we got to reach out to Him. We're never closer to Him than those times. And while we long for the good, God promises us in His Scripture that no good thing will He withhold from His people. If that's true, and with David, we pray prayers that aren't answered. Or at least not answered the way we'd like. What does that mean? If the Bible says He will not withhold any good thing, and He does not move the way we're asking in prayer, it means what we're asking for isn't good. It's not brain surgery. And then we look at it and we think, we want to try to put a logical spin on it. So we look at it and we think, well, how can this not be good? How can this healing not be good? How can this this deliverance not be good? How can these things that I'm asking for not be good? These are all good things. Look, they're not good if the result of those good things that we see do not Bring people into a closer relationship with God. If the result is taking them to a place of complacency, a place where they drift, a a place where they, they pull away, then that wasn't a good thing. But then we say, well, we look at it and we prayed and we asked and, and God didn't do and these people left anyway. And you don't want to hear what John has to say about that. John says, if they left from among you, they were not ever of you. For if they were of you, they would remain. So when we look at Scripture, we want, us, we want to realize, does God want us to pray? Absolutely. Is it to move God's hand? Well, sometimes our prayers do Move God's hand. But more often, what's the purpose of prayer? To align me with God. When my desire in prayer is to move God's hand, usually I find myself in a man-centered environment. In other words, my focus is me. Mankind. What I want, what I need for now. 
But if my focus is God-centered, what God wants, what God needs, it really changes my attitude. And I know that the God that I'm calling on will not withhold any good thing. And I know that the God I'm calling on loves me and His desire is for me to spend eternity with Him. If you were here Sunday, we talked about the rope. Everybody remember the rope? That that classic Francis Chan illustration? If I strung a rope all the way across the sanctuary and said that is eternity, how much of that rope is our life on earth? You'd be lucky if you could even see it. But if I put a red dot on one end, and if all of our living and breathing and doing is for that one dot, is that really wisdom? When there's so much more of life. But because what is left of life is something we don't see yet, we don't value it and we live for what we can see. And that is uh, as opposite from what Jesus taught as anything you can imagine. Did Jesus say live for today? Live for right now? Get all you can? Or did He say live for eternity? Live for the promise that God is, is giving. So that's the attitude that we want to have in our prayers. That the work that God is doing, the yeses and the noes and the maybes and the, and the waits and all those things that we face is, is our trusting a God-centered reality that God knows what He's doing and why it is that way. Who's in control? God or man? It doesn't matter if, if it, it, if it appears as though there is a, a human being who is making your life miserable, the Bible is very clear. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So our enemy is not flesh and blood. There is a greater reality that we can't even begin to understand. Uh, Jason was sharing with me a, a show he watched. I might, I might try to dig it up on, on Netflix. Uh, but it's something about quantum mechanics in the universe. And the concepts of the uh, uh, 11 dimensions. Yeah, I said 11. And the concepts that they, that they can prove, but they can't understand why they happen that way. Which, which is a lot easier for me, because I would be surprised if they could prove and solve all of those different issues. But when we look at that, when we, when we, when we look at the concepts, there's a lot out there that we can't see. Isn't there? And that we can't fathom. And is there a possibility in that which we can't see? That there is information that we don't have that would help us understand why God is allowing the things God allows. If all I can account for in my knowledge is that little dot at the end of the rope, surely there's enough room for God to be moving in ways that I can't comprehend. What does the Bible say? His ways are higher than our ways. He knows more. I say this when I talk about guys who are really gifted in things like, for example, if I was talking to guys who are really good at guitar, I say things like, well, he's forgot more about the guitar than I know. And God doesn't forget. But if he did, (laughs) he's forgot more than I'll ever know. 
So we want to, we want to understand the heart. Jesus wants us to pray. He wants us to continue to pray, to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking, to never give up, to continue to have faith that God's moving and that God is doing the work that God wants to do. He wants us to have that attitude in our prayer life and to remain God-centered, that God is the reason behind our prayers, not me just getting what I want. But God getting what he wants. You remember when the disciples came to Jesus, they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. What did the Lord begin with? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's next? Thy kingdom. Who's thy? Oh, that's God. Your kingdom come. What's the next part? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the, what's the centrality of that prayer? What's the focus of that prayer? God's will done on earth. Like it's done in heaven. That we have a God-centered reality. Look at Psalm 28. We're never going to get nowhere. I better hurry up. So to you I will cry, Oh Lord, my rock. David is talking about his prayer. He's he's talking about the beauty of the holiness of the sanctuary of God. Ultimately the Holy of Holies. Or the place where he can have contact with God. He's speaking metaphorically because David never went into the Holy of Holies. The temple didn't exist at the time of David. So when David talks about being in the holiest place of all, he's talking about being in the very presence of God where he can commune with God. And so as he's talking about, he says, Oh Lord, to you, to you, he's using God's proper name. Remember that every time we see capital L-O-R-D in the scriptures, a proper name of God. It's called the Tetragrammaton. The Yahweh, the YHVH. And so this is God's name. This is His name. So He says, to you, O Lord, my rock. That, that concept, my rock. And we know from 1 Corinthians 10, who's the rock? 1 Corinthians 10 tells us Christ is the rock. The rock that followed the children of Israel from which they got the water, right? When the children of Israel needed water, where did it come from? The rock. The rock that split, right? The rock split, creating what? A cleft? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That cleft from which living water sprang, by which the children of Israel were watered on their journey. 1 Corinthians 10 says, that rock is Jesus Christ. Here, that rock is called Almighty God. O Lord God Almighty, the proper name of God, my rock. Speaking of his stability and their source of strength. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like one of those who goes down to the pit. I don't want to be like one. He says, if I don't hear from you, God, it's like I'm dead. You feel that way? He says, if I don't hear from you, David was was so used in the place of communion with God, of receiving from Him. I'm not necessarily saying that God spoke to him audibly. There were times certainly God did. But the point is, David was so used to communion with God, that he knew when God was silent. I'd say our reality is more the opposite. We're more surprised when God speaks... And we feel more normative when we don't hear from the Lord. But David was opposite. He was, he was so, communion with God was so important to him. Well, he just told us last week, he said, Lord, you told me that I should seek your face. 
So your face is the only thing I want to seek. One thing have I desired of the Lord. Remember? One thing have I desired. What was the one thing? To be in His presence. That's all He wanted. That's all He wanted. So here He's, he's talking about, man, I, I can't hear you. It's like, it's like I'm being drugged into the deepest, darkest dungeon. That was the pit. It, it, it would come to symbolize Sheol, or the place of the grave. Um, the idea is a place where spirits are placed in prison, where God would put the worst of the worst of the, of the angels that fell in prison. The Bible calls it the abuso in Greek, or the bottomless pit, that place where he's going to throw the devil during the millennial reign. Remember, he wraps him up in chains, throws him in the abuso, locks it up, locks him in there for a season. So here he says, it's like I'm being drugged to that place. And then he cries out in verse 2, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Really, literally what he's saying in the Hebrew, when I lift up my hands to the holiest place. So here's David is saying, Lord, just hear my voice. Look, I haven't heard from you, so I'm going to keep praying. That's persistence, Right? I don't hear you. I feel like I'm, I'm being drugged down into the pit in prison. I'm, I'm staying here. I'm calling on you until it just reminds me of that woman knocking on the judge's door. I'm praying until something happens, till you speak to me, till you show me persistence. Persistence. And I'm lifting up my hands to the holiest place. That's the, that is the single greatest um, posture in my estimation of a worshiper, lifting their hands to God. It's not because we get the idea, I, I want you to see from God's point of view. We get the idea, we look at one another if we lift our hands and we get, we get weird about it sometimes. But what it looks like from God's point of view is just what it looks like to you when you were a parent and your little ones came running up to you and lifted their arms up to you. That's what it means. When the scripture says, I lift my arms up to you, what are you asking for God? Pick me up, Dad. Scoop me up in your arms. Hold me. I'm afraid. I'm scared. I'm whatever. So that's what lifting up our arms to Him is. It's that, it's that posture that says, I need you. I need to hear from you. I need to know what it is you're, you're saying and what you're telling me and what you're doing. And then he says in verse 3, his fear. This is his fear. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors but evil is in their hearts. He says, look, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be taken away. He says, he's, he, he's acknowledging that he deserves to go with the wicked. Okay. By, by simply saying, don't take me away with the wicked and the workers of iniquity. And then he describes them. And we, when we think of wicked or iniquitous people, people wrapped up in their sin, maybe some things fly into your mind. But that's what, what flies to his mind is those who lie. So I'm, I'm sure nobody's going to try to sell me that you have not lied in this room. And how many times you got to lie before you're a liar? Yeah, just one time. And I'm sure you did that at least today. <clears throat> so he's saying, look, my prayer is, I don't want to be like the, I don't want to be like the wicked. I don't want to be the, the guys who are lying with evil in their heart. So give to the lost. Give to those according to their deeds. In other words, let them reap what they sow. 
That's, that's God's choice, by the way. Sometimes we think it's a, it's a spiritual law. It, it is in some ways and it isn't in others. We know that people who do the works of iniquity aren't always judged immediately, right? <laughs> Hopefully we see that on the news all the time. <laughs> but the idea here is he's saying, Lord, let them reap what they sow. Let those who, who want to live by iniquity and according to their, uh, to the wickedness of their endeavors, give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve. And then he says the why. Because. See the because in verse 5. Because. They do not regard. They put no value. They don't treasure the Lord. Nor the work of his hands. See the only difference that David's making between himself and the liars. Is that David cares about values, treasures the Lord. And the operation of his hands. The things God, what God is and what God's doing. He treasures that. That's it. That's the differentiation between himself and the wicked. Between those who he's asking for to get what they deserve or what they're, what they're sowing. May they reap the harvest of what they sow. And those who are, um, would find themselves not receiving that. What is the, what is the issue? Because they regard the works of the Lord and the operation of His hands. So He will not destroy them and He shall destroy them and not build them up. So those who don't treasure the Lord, who don't love the Lord. What's the one thing we talked about last week God's looking for? We complicate it. It's not complicated. The Bible's not complicated. God wants one thing. He wants you to love Him with everything in you. Yeah, he wants you to to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your your being given over to him voluntarily, just because you value him. So those who don't, those who who won't, he says, then he will destroy him. He'll not build them up. I can live for that dot and I can spend all my life focused on that dot and I can get everything I can cram into that dot and that dot's all I'll ever have. Or I can live for the whole rope. And the whole rope means I'm living for the Lord. I'm trusting Him, choosing to love Him. you got to understand, we in the Western mindset, we make love an emotion. But in the Eastern mindset, love and hate was choosing. To be chosen was to be loved. To be hated was to not be chosen. You guys have heard scripture, right? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have. How's it go? Hated. It's not like the Western mindset. It's the Eastern mindset. What's the Eastern mindset? I chose Jacob and I didn't choose Esau. Why? Because Jacob cared about the Lord and Esau didn't. So I chose Jacob. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Love and hate in the Hebrew mind was to be chosen, to be picked. And this is what God's asking for from us, to be chosen. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Choose God. What did Joshua say? Remember Joshua right before we enter into the time of the judges? Joshua said, choose this day, what? Who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
So what was Joshua choosing to do? Love God. So here, the psalmist, he's, he's encouraging, he's asking, he's, he's saying the same thing about himself. This is what I'm doing. Then he gets, then he, then he moves into the realm of, of, of personal in, in verse six and seven. He's going to move in, into corporate in, in verse eight and following. But look at verse six. So he says, blessed be the Lord because he heard the voice of my supplication. So why is he praising God? Because God heard him. But you see that first five verses are unanswered. That's my point. My point is the first five verses, he's praying and he's calling and saying, Lord, hello, Lord, don't do this and, and don't do that. But there's no response from God. But then immediately you have him moving personally into a place of praising God because he's hearing me. God hears me. You believe that? That God hears you. That God is listening, that it matters to God. I remember one time I was at a little league game and, and I don't like little league. I like baseball, but little league was like the, taking humanity to the lowest point you can and watching adults act like morons and, 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 and then having to be okay with that. Now, maybe it's not like that in Idaho. California, oh my gosh, it was terrible. Terrible. I hated going. So I'm talking to my dad on the phone and, and my son JC's playing baseball and so I'm there watching him and I'm like, I'm like telling my dad, I'm like, man, these guys, I don't know, man, I just, <clears throat> kind of laying out the, the, all the, all my angst about, uh, Little League and, which is how I think I ended up in the coaching and then I coached from then until last year. So, but the, but, I'm laying it out for my dad. My dad says, well, Jackie, do, do you pray about that? I'm like, pray about it. Dad, God's got a lot of stuff to do. Little League is probably not big on his list of, you know, concerns. And I'll never forget what my dad said. My dad said, does it matter to you? And I said, yeah. And it matters to God. There ain't nothing too small or too big that God doesn't want us to always pray and never lose heart. The key to not losing heart, never stop praying. Never stop asking. Having the attitude of the psalmist, hey, he hears me. And then look what he says in verse 7. Now this is not an answer, but this is a proclamation of truth. The Lord, personal name again, right? Capital L-O-R-D. The Lord is whose strength? Mine. That's personal, right? Don't get no more personal than that. God is my strength and my shield. Shield speaks of protection. He's my protector. Nothing gets through the shield except what the shield wants to get through. So if something got through, your shield let it through. Right? If God's your shield, if something comes through, that's God ordained. He's allowed that to pass through the shield. But... Along with him being your shield, he's also your strength, which means your ability to continue to walk, to continue to face, to continue to move and and be directed is given to you by God. So he gives you the strength to walk and he gives you the protection that you need. And it's personal. This is my strength, my shield. For my heart trusted in him and I am 
helped. Now, here's the unfortunate thing about English and Hebrew to English. It almost looks like it's just past tense. My heart trusted. So I want you to understand both in English and Hebrew, this is present. It'd be best to say it, my heart continues to trust in Him. It is a continuous action. I am trusting, I have trusted, and I will continue to trust in the Lord. So he's, saying, he's making a proclamation of faith. And when he says, I am helped, <clears throat> he's saying, the help I need, either the strength for the journey, or the shield for protection, I already have. It's already mine. Even though as far as he's concerned, the prayers haven't been answered yet. But he says, I am helped. I got strength for the journey and shield for protection. God's watching out for me. And then the little phrase, therefore, you guys see it. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices. And with my song, I will praise him. So David prays, continues to pray, and praises God for the answer that he hasn't received yet. It's not the same thing as praising God that that God has already brought his healing. That's not what he's doing. He's saying that God's already answered my prayer. He's already my help. He's already my strength. He's already my shield. I am trusting in him. He is my help. I'm holding on to God. I have everything I need in him. And he's going to continue to pray. And he's going to continue to seek him. And he's going to continue to proclaim his trust and his faith and his hope in God. That's what made David a man of integrity. Remember last time we talked about what does integrity mean? Wholeness of heart. What, how is it that God described David? A man after my own heart. He's a man after my own heart. Single heart. Undivided heart. Oftentimes my heart's divided. I want something over there and something over there. I want to walk with the Lord, but I have a hard time letting go of stuff in the world. So I want to have integrity, then, then i got to change my focus. And i got to become central, uh, uh, focused centrally on God and His will and His direction. And prayer is one of the ways I do that. That I'm asking for Him. I want Him more than I want His goods. But look, in verse 8, He, he gets corporate. Look, He looks, he's, He's zoomed in on Himself. He's my strength, my shield. But then He says in verse 8, The Lord is their strength. And the saving refuge of His anointed. You can put the phrase of His chosen. He is the saving refuge of His chosen. The ones God has has chosen. And the, the scripture lays out for us, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you are chosen of God. A lot of people don't like to talk about chosen, and I'm not a Calvinist. But the Bible talks about it all over the place. You you don't get to skip it because it's uncomfortable. God says, I chose you. When I put my faith and trust in him, God said, I picked Jackie. I picked him. He is the saving refuge for all his chosen. Anyone who puts their faith and trust in him, he has chosen you. He has saved you. He is taking care of you. And this is corporate. This is not just personal. It's all the people around. He's talking about Israel specifically, right? The people. The people. Save your people, verse 9, and bless your inheritance. Do you ever think about that phrase? Your inheritance. When he says, Israel is your inheritance. Uh, uh, okay, so God, you 
created this entire universe and all the stuff and all the beauty and majesty and all this stuff. And what you get out of all your creation is the nation of Israel. That's your prize, your inheritance. Now, for those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have become with, uh, with those who are true, the, the, the inheritance for God, um, what's our inheritance? The Lord's ours. Well, who do you think got the better deal? God or us? Man, we got a good deal. We got a good deal. God. He didn't, all he got was pain and heartache, didn't he? But the Bible says that it's his inheritance. That means this. That's what God wants out of all of this. You. Me. Whosoever will call in the name of the Lord. That's all he wants. That's, his, that's awesome, man, to, to consider that that is God's prize. And then look at his final, the final part of, of his prayer in verse 9. So shepherd them also. That implies that God is his shepherd. How do we know that to be true? We studied that in, in, in chapter 23, right? What's it say? The Lord is whose shepherd? My shepherd. My shepherd. That's personal, right? So David already knows God is my shepherd. So here he says, shepherd them also. Shepherd the people, shepherd your inheritance, shepherd your prize, shepherd those who have put their faith and their trust in you, shepherd them. And the last phrase, I love it, I I can't underline it anymore, it tore my paper. It says, and bear them up forever. If I want to make that in real simple English, and carry them in your arms like a child forever. Remember how we started when I said that posture, lifting your hands to God? David's here lifting his hands to God and he's praising the Lord and he's saying, man, you're my shepherd. Shepherd them also. And it's almost as though as David's like this, God is scooping him up and David is saying to the Lord, man, shepherd them too and carry them in your arms just like you're carrying me. That's pretty incredible. And and that's what God does. He bears us in his arms. He, is he strong enough to handle our problems? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And no matter how long our life is here, even if it's a hundred years, God's got the strength to cover us that hundred and forevermore. So, David, in focusing on the Holy of Holies, he compares that to the place of prayer and communion with God and God's ability to be everything that He wants Him to be. Now, we come to Psalm 29. Psalm 29 is known as the Psalm of Pentecost. The Psalm of Pentecost. And it's going to present God as the God of the storm. It's kind of a cool psalm because of, of some of the things we'll see in it. So, I'll just go. He says, give unto the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. What are we talking about? Personal name of God, right? So, so he's already, he's already using God's personal name and he's saying, give or ascribe unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So as he begins with his proclamation, he begins with a proclamation of God's glory in the temple. God's glory 
here and now. So first, give unto the Lord, O you His mighty ones. Now, I didn't get a chance to print it out in in, uh, all the other translations. I always tell people, try to encourage them. When you read the Bible, read multiple translations. Because English is a screwy language. Okay, uh, for most of us, we it's just normal. But uh, translating from another language into English is tricky to to get all the concepts in it. So when he talks about the mighty ones, the word for the mighty ones is a word called Bene Ha Elohim. It comes up in another place, Genesis six. Oh, come on. You guys know that one. Remember when the sons of God knew the daughters of men and took of them all that they liked? We, we have this concept where people have argued about who are the Beni Elohim, the sons of God. Only mentioned in the Old Testament through handful, I'll say a handful of times because it might be more than three times, but three times I know of. Job, speaking of angels. Genesis 6, I believe, speaking of angels. And Psalm 29, speaking of, you guessed it, angels. All three times he's talking to the angels. Who's he saying? Given to the Lord praise. He's calling for the angelic host. You want to know if that's what they thought in that time? In 270 B.C., when the Old Testament was translated into the Greek, they translated it, given to him praise, all ye angels. Because that's what, that wasn't translated by by Americans. Who was that? That was the Jews. Translating what? Their scripture. From a language they spoke. To Greek. And they said, Beni Elohim, Beni Elohim, is referencing the mighty ones, the holy ones, the angels, the created order that God has. So he said, give them to the Lord. Oh, you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Unto the Lord the glory, do His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. Now, when He's calling out to the mighty ones, the angelic host, every time we see the angelic host and they're praising God around the throne, can you think of a word they're repeating over and over again? Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is, is to come. So we, we see that phrase, right? We see it in Isaiah. We see it in Revelation. We see it throughout the prophets. Anytime that we come to the cherubim who are doing what? Praising God. What are they doing? They're glorifying Him. What are they doing? They're worshiping Him for His holiness. So here in the beginning of Psalm 29, this is the, the call from David. Calling to them, glory and strength and the glory do His name. Glory is what proceeds out of God. Holiness... When we look at, at, at holiness, uh, glory proceeds out of God. Holiness is who God is. Or what God is. And the glory do His name is who God is. So the glory do His name for what it means to be the becoming one. Yahweh, um, the, the, the name of God, the proper name of God, Yahweh from, from Exodus chapter 3, literally means <laughs> to become. That's why when we look at John, and we look at the Gospel of John, and John over and over again is talking about some statements that Jesus makes, where Jesus says, I am. You remember Jesus in John chapter 8, around verse 58, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees want to kill him. Because he said, before Abraham is, I am. You remember? 
Jesus said before, Abraham he is, I am. And they all want to stone him. Now, if we don't understand what he's saying, he just declared himself the Yahweh, the becoming one. In Exodus chapter 3, you remember Moses speaking to God at the, at the burning bush. Lord, who shall I say is sending me? Remember what God said? Tell them I am has sent you. I am. Literally, I'm the becoming one. That's why Jesus would come. It says that no one has seen God at any time, but it's the only begotten of the Father. Begotten, by the way, doesn't mean born one. Begotten means unique. This, this unique one from the Father, God the Son, He proclaims, He manifests, He shows us what God is. Now think about the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am that which sustains you. I am the way, the truth and the life. He's the one who <clears throat> provides us the way to the Father. I am the door. What's he saying? You gotta pass through me. I am the resurrection. Because there's no resurrection apart from him. Everything he describes himself as. I am the good shepherd. He's describing God. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? Gives his life for the sheep. All of it proclaiming who he is. The Yahweh, the becoming one. And so as he's, as he's saying, this is the, the glory to your name. Who God is. That's seen to us through Messiah, through Jesus Christ. Now, beginning in verse 3, he's going to talk about God's glory in the storm. And this, this is a, <clears throat> a pretty awesome metaphor. It's going to follow a storm from, the, from uh, the Mediterranean Ocean, from the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean, all the way to Mount, I want to say Mount Sinai. We'll see in a minute when I open my Bible back up and look. But it's 200 miles from the Mediterranean Ocean to, to the last place we're going to talk about. When, when we look here. So he's following this storm. And all along the way, he's, he's watching this storm. You see David watching this storm going across the land. He sees in that storm attributes of God. Do you see attributes of God in your storm? Because David did. When David's son Absalom was trying to rebel and take the kingdom. And he's walking out of Jerusalem without ever having fought. He said, look, if God wants him to be king, I'll leave. And so he walks out of Jerusalem. And as he's walking out, he, he, he meets a guy named Shimei. Shimei, who, who didn't like David much. And he, he starts shouting curses at the king. And Abishai, who was Joab's brother and one of David's mighty men. You remember those guys who fought their way to Bethlehem to give him a glass of water? So, it's one of those guys who fought their way all the way through the Palestinian army just to get a glass of water for David. Which means that he was a bad dude. Abishai looks over at David and he says, Hey, let me go cut that guy's head off. And David says, No. Abishai, how do I know that what he's saying isn't something God has ordained for him to tell me and me to hear? Do you see God in your storm? Do you hear His voice in the voice of people who shout at you and say hurtful and hateful things? Because David was always willing to be open to receive and say, maybe this, I'm not saying it is, but maybe this is from God. Maybe God wants me to hear Shimei. 
Maybe there's something God wants me to learn from this circumstance. So, so I just want to take it in, not try to drive it away. He sees God in, in the midst of his storm. So, it says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. <clears throat> now you remember, when I talk about Israel, I tell you, Israel's not a seafaring nation. Does everybody understand? Israel did not have a navy. It's kind of hard to get your, your boats to float across the desert. They had the Mediterranean Ocean. They would fish, but they never went out. They kind of, they're homebodies. They like to stay where they were. So the waters, the oceans, the unknown, the chaos of the world was always described as the sea. You heard in, in Revelation where it says, and there will be no more sea. Right? And everybody's worried there's not going to be any more beaches. I'm not sure that's what it means. Keep in mind that the, 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 the illustration is Jewish. So when we look at the illustration, no sea, no chaos, no, no trouble. Where does the beast come from in the book of Revelation? Out of where? Yeah. So when, when we, we, he's coming out of all that chaos. <clears throat> so it says here, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. That means the voice of Almighty God. God is sovereign over chaos. <laughs> it means God didn't lose control when things got really crazy. God still... His voice is still over the waters. He's still in control. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. Again, it's His proper name is being used. The, the sovereignty of Almighty God over all the chaos in life. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. How do we know that to be true? Because one day the voice of the Lord was sitting in a boat. Oh, the voice. Let me, let me back that up. The voice of the Lord. Another way you could call that would be the Word of God. Does that sound familiar to you? In the beginning was the Word was with God. The Word was God. Another way you would say that would be the voice. Right? The voice. Who is God's voice to you and I? Oh, man. Jesus is God's voice. <clears throat> on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, the, the disciples are freaking out. There's a huge storm in the Sea of Galilee, right? Which is a lake. Everybody knows that, right? It's a, it's a lake. So there's this big storm on this lake, and they're all sure they're perishing. And what did the voice of the Lord do? Yeah, He's rebuked the storm, which is an interesting word. Same word it's used when He rebukes the demons. He rebuked the storm, and He said, Peace, be still. What happened? The voice of the Lord, Yahweh, Almighty God, is over the water. You don't see it? The voice of God is over the water. He controls the storm when it starts, when it stops. And so he's, he's rejoicing in the power and the voice of God. Look at verse 5. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. It's like the voice of God. Like if you see a mighty wind coming through or a tornado going through a forest and all the lumber being tossed to and fro. He's saying, the voice of God breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. So we've moved now from the place of the waters, which would have been the Mediterranean Ocean. We're all the way down to Lebanon now. <clears throat> he makes them to skip like a calf. So the, the wind's really got to be howling, right? For the cedars of Lebanon that look like they're dancing around. So they're dancing around. He says, man, look, they, they skip like a calf. That's all the voice of God, able to do all those things. 
Lebanon and Syrian, which is uh, Mount Hermon. It's about 10,000 feet of elevation above sea level. So we've moved not only inland, but now we're at 10,000 feet above sea level. We were at sea level when we began. It says, Lebanon and Syrian, like, like a, a young wild ox, the voice of the Lord divides the flame of fire. Oh, that's lightning. You know, lightning, how it branches? Well, David's saying it's the voice of God that, that branches the lightning, that blows the trees, that moves in this storm. This is, this is the power of God moving in this storm. He says in verse 8, The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Kadesh Barnea. That's where the people were faced with a choice to trust God or not. You remember that, right? They sent spies into the land. Two of the spies came back and said, we got this. Ten spies came back and said, we don't got this at all. And they're faced with a choice. Trust God who said, I'll give it to you if you go. Or trust themselves. What did they choose? Trust themselves. And so they wandered for 40 years until another generation came up. And then they came to Kadesh Barnea and were faced with the same choice. Trust God or trust yourself. This time they chose to trust God. And so they entered into the land and God gave them the land. So here, the, the speaking of that wilderness experience. That, But look, we've up until this point, all we've seen is the power of God moving incredible things, shaking mountains, knocking down trees, Doing all this stuff. And just look at verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. Just to keep us from, from having our minds just set on destruction. He stops and, 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 and shows the control of the voice of God. Yeah, it's the voice of God that, that makes the deer give birth. It just brings about the picture, the concept of, of gentleness. It's not always storm is it it's not always hard it's not always difficult isn't there times of beauty and and sweetness in the midst of all of that sure there is and so he says where does all that come from that comes from the lord as well it's the voice of god makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare wipes out all the trees so you got power control And in his temple, everyone says, glory. What we see at the end of verse 9 is a response of of, uh, humility and joy in the midst of a storm that doesn't make any sense. But the understanding that in the midst of this storm, it's more than just chaotic, hostile forces moving against us. It's not just chaos. Behind it all, God is at work. God is moving purposefully. The Bible says that God has no glory in the destruction of the wicked. So God's purpose, His his desire is not to wipe them out. What's His desire? To to try to bring them to faith, bring them to repentance, right? He, He sent... A guy named Jonah, who didn't want to go, went the opposite way. He swallowed him by a fish, had him thrown up on the shore of Nineveh, just so that he would preach to the Ninevites. 
so he could save them. Right? And the people repented and God relented of the judgment that was to come until the time of Hosea. And Hosea goes back to Nineveh and he preaches to Nineveh because Nineveh is back in that decline again. And he preaches and they, they don't take it. They don't listen. They don't. And so the God judges the nation and the Assyrians uh, or the, the Babylonians conquer the Assyrians. So it's not just going on with the nation of Israel and others. It's, it, it's happening in everyone's life. God is moving. So we, we see in the storm and the hostile forces and the craziness of life in the midst of it all, the voice of God. God is working. And he's working for my good and his glory. Does the Bible tell us that? And we know that all things work together for and his glory, right? All things work together for good to those who are what? The called. And to those who what? Two things. The called and those who love God. All things work together for good to those who are the called. Those who love God. Man, the, 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 the promises of God for his people, even in the midst of craziness... I am moving and I am working for your good. Then in verse 10 and 11, he turns and he looks at the throne. And this is a, we've seen, so we saw God in the temple in the beginning. And the angels in the temple in heaven. The Lord's there, the angels all around him praising him. Like we see, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Then we see David looking at the storm and the chaos and saying, look, there's God. He's moving and working in the storm. And all these crazy things are happening. But look, there, the deer just gave birth. He's doing, he's bringing life. He's doing good things in the midst of the storm. All that stuff's going on. And then he comes to the end just to say, God is still on the throne. Look at verse 10. He says, the Lord sat enthroned. What's that phrase? At the flood. That word is only used uh, one other place in the Bible. It's at Noah's flood. So we know which flood he's talking about. He's talking about, so that, I want you to picture that flood was a pretty crazy time, right? Global, <clears throat> some people w- want to call it some kind of localized flood. The, the, I love that the Bible don't let you do that. You either got to decide you're in or out with the Bible. It says that the mountains were covered. Do you ever cover a mountain with a local flood? So to cover the mountains, that's deep water, right? So <clears throat> he says, God was on the throne during the flood. God was in control. The Lord sits as king forever. So we see God's glory on the throne. The Lord ruling. God is there on the throne forever. He didn't get lost today. And then there's two other promises. The Lord will give and the Lord will bless. So not only is he talking about the the destruction that occurs during the flood, but also that the Lord rules during that time. God knows what he's doing, right from wrong. And the Lord will give strength to His people. That's what you need in order to walk through the storm. And He will bless His people with peace. He will bless with peace. He ever had peace in the midst of the storm? I know Jesus did because He was sleeping like a baby on that boat. Wasn't He? Was He worried about drowning? No. The disciples sleeping? No, disciples were not sleeping. There, there, there. It was chaos, right? Storm. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? <clears throat> So they wake Jesus up. The first thing they said to him was, don't you care? You ever felt that way? 
So the message of this psalm is, look, God is still God in the storm. And God is still doing good things in the midst of chaos. And God is still ruling. He knows what he's doing. And God will give you strength. And he can give you peace in the middle of it all. And so David praises him. The storm he watches reminds him of the power of God and the goodness of God that he showers upon his people in the land of the living.